0: Turn to Revelation 14. While you're doing that, let me just uh, remind us of the approach that we've been taking to this book. We're studying this book like we study the rest of the Bible. Um, We're we're understanding what this book first meant to its original audience before just running the the meaning of the book to our day today. And it, it meant something to them. The whole book was understood by them. And had great meaning. And we're going to seek to find that. And we've already f- realized that it's written to seven specific churches. Churches that are about to undergo, as John describes it, an ordeal. We, we translate that word tribulation, but it's, it, it's an ordeal. It's a great ordeal. And... Uh, This letter contains a vision that Jesus gives to John, and John is to pass this vision on. And I'd like to just remind us, so far, where we are in this vision. The vision begins with the most awesome, most comforting reality there is, and that is God sits on his throne and the cosmos gathers in worship to him. And also John saw around the throne um, all God's family, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 upon 10,000, also angels, angelic beings that are joint worshiping uh, the one on the throne. Then the vision zooms in on, on what's in the Lord's hands, a scroll. And John weeps because no one can open the scroll. And he should weep because the scroll needs to be opened. Because the scroll represents the grand purposes of God that must be accomplished in this world. Of God redeeming, God judging, God making the world right. But then John sees one standing next to the throne. The perfect image of God. Uh, who he describes as a lamb, he is worthy to open the scroll. And uh, to do so, seven seals must be broken. So as the seals are broken, and as God's judgment unfolds upon the earth, these seven seals, accompanied also by seven trumpets, uh, speak of this judgment that God is unleashing. Now, this was the surprise I had in studying this, is that God's judgment in this part of the vision was for his people, Israel. God's fiercest judgment always is for his people, because so much is at stake in terms of his purposes for the world um, as it pertains to us. And... Uh, The judgment uh, that God unleashed was used by a pagan empire, Rome. Rome is the one who brought this judgment. You can read about this in Revelation 11. Um, Now we're going to turn to God's further judgment, which is now going to be unleashed upon the vehicle of his judgment in the first part of the uh, vision, and that is Rome itself. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, uh, Revelation 14. And then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And these are those who did not defile themselves with woman, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and to the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They were blameless. And then I saw an angel flying in midair. And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he spoke in a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And a second angel followed and and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead, and on their hand they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, And of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark and its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God, who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. And I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come. For the harvest of earth is ripe. And so he was seated on the clown and he swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a a sharp sickle. And still another who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of grapes and the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, threw them in the great wine press of God's wrath. They were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. This is God's word, his very word. You can be seated. I mean, I'm going to state the obvious. That is a very, very sobering text. And uh, I really feel like, like God shepherds us even in choosing uh, the books of the Bible that we study. And so um, we're going to follow our good shepherd this morning. Um, I'm going to try to be a faithful under-shepherd to this text. Um, There are three parts to this text, and they're laid out really nicely by uh, the NIV. If you have a Bible like this, you can see them. Uh, The first image that John gives us, or that God gives John, is this image of the 144,000. They're on neither land nor sea, but they have the high ground, Zion, and they are standing with the Lamb, with God's name, on their forehead. That's the first image. Second image is these three angels, or these three messengers, each with a distinct message, or you could call it a three-part sermon for the whole world. Third image is the image of the Son of Man, the Daniel Seven, one like a son of Man, with a sickle in his hand ready to harvest the earth. Those are the three images. I can make these images, I can boil each of these images down to one word, too. First image, Christ. Second image, gospel. Third image, Christ. In fact, uh, the whole chapter hangs on, on two clauses, verse 1 and verse 14, where John says, And then I looked, and, beheld. and in verse one he says, and then I looked and beheld the lamb. And in verse 14 he says, and then I looked and I beheld one like a son of man. Because what John wants more than anything is for us to behold him. To see him. The Christ. Who is both lamb and lamb. And one like a son of man. And the lamb speaks to his grace. I mean, the reason why 144,000 are standing with the lamb is because he is a lamb slain. And this lamb stood in their place so they can stand with him. The Son of Man, that 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 other image of Him, uh, really speaks of His justice. And borrowing from Daniel seven, this is the one who's going to come to the earth and execute God's judgment. And then, sandwiched between these two images of Christ, you have the gospel. The gospel, and the gospel is not just that God saves. One of the first usage of gospel in the Bible is Isaiah 52 where it says, How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces gospel, who proclaims peace, who tells the world, Our God reigns. That's the gospel. Is that God reigns? That the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ and the way he's going to reign is as lamb but also as a fierce lion. Maybe this is just my opinion right now but I just sometimes feel that Christians today, we we, we love this idea of Christ being our lamb. It, It it, it's so awesome. It is the reason why we can be in Christ, why we can stand with him. Uh, but we are uncomfortable with this one like a son of man or this, this, this lion side of Christ. We want the grace, but are we willing to look at the justice side? Because, yes, God is love, but even God's love is holy, and there's a furious quality to the holy love of God. I mean, all you have to do is just think about all the injustices in the world, all the evil, all the sin, and, and a God who says, I so love the world, and this God who says that and loves it is also holy. He has to do something about it. And he will do something about it. I mean, just look at Jesus. Did Jesus ever get mad? Yes. Sometimes furious. And see, it's the holy love of God that demands that God must do something about evil, about sin. He can't just sweep it all under the rug and act like it doesn't exist. All the wrongs of the world, a world that he loves, someone must pay for it. Now when you think of Christ, when you pray to him, when you worship him, What comes to your mind? Do you know him as lamb? But do you also know him as one like a son of man? One that when John saw him in in, in the first encounter in Revelation 1, all John could do is fall at his feet like a dead man. One like a son of man. I love that. I love that clause. Partly because I am a man. And the definition of man for me is that when a man sees evil and injustice in the world, we don't just passively look at it, but men move into it to do something about it. And that's Christ. And that's God. And that's the message of the Bible. Um, and, 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 and the question then is, is, is what is, is Christ going to do about it? And, and how is he going to do it? And I think that's also the message of these three angels, uh, these messengers in our text. In fact, at the heart of, of their message, look at verse 8. Three angels, but right in the heart, the second angel, the middle angel, followed and said... Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Babylon is, is, is first century code word for Rome. Peter uses Babylon in 1 Peter 5 verse 13 to refer to Rome. Rome, we've already seen, has become this this trinity of evil. It's come under the spell of of this dragon and two beasts. The first beast is the seven-headed monster which represents the Caesars who call themselves Lord and God and demand that the world worship them as as Lord and God. The second beast represents the empire, uh, more specifically the, the propaganda machine of the empire which shines the light on the first beast and tells the world to worship the first beast. And then behind all of this flesh and blood because our battle is not just against flesh and blood, but about principalities and and things that go all the way back to the beginning, is the dragon. And what this trinity of evil does is it does everything it can do to to mimic God, to take the place of Christ, to to act as this counterfeit, to be this cheap substitute. And it reminds me of Psalm 2, where where it says... um, Um, the rulers and the emperors of this rule world, they will take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what they do. They are against the Lord. They are against Christ, but I I love it. The next verse is, but he just laughs." laughs. God laughs at that. How can he not laugh? But at the end of Psalm 2, it says, kiss the Messiah, or he will be angry. Because God is not going to sweep these things under the rug. He will not allow evil. He will not allow an evil to to bully his people. He is going to judge. He's going to execute judgment. Now, here's the scary part of God's judgment as I read this. It's not just on Caesar. It's not just on Caesar's government and Caesar's machinery that he has in place. But listen to what the third angel says. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been pulled into full strength into the cup of his wrath. This cup going to drink it. The cup of what? God's wrath, his fury. In fact, uh, John here is just borrowing from the prophets. Um, Isaiah 51 verse 17. Let me see. I I, I actually did the work of, of writing some text out this morning. Um, Isaiah 51, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, have drained its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. Or how about Psalm 78? In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink down it to its very dregs and are no more. Or Jeremiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. And so this, this cup of God's wrath. And, and, and John gives, it, gives us the specific thing. Um, that, that God is upset about. Rome's sin, too, is depicted as as a cup. It's, it's pictured as wine. It's verse 8, the maddening wine uh, that Rome offered the world was that of, in the Greek, pornea. Where we get the word porn. And now, if you were sleeping a little bit, I probably got your attention. Um, but but porn here actually means the, the 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 wine of her maddening, the maddening wine of her adultery. It means adultery. Um, we and, and we know all of us know Rome enough to know that Rome is known for its sexual practices. They were a highly sexualized culture. They were not just sexually permissive. They were not just um, this sexual in-your-face lifestyle. They were also sexually exploitive. Rome hurt, they abused, they trafficked many victims. But here's one thing that I want us to know. John is using this language of of, of pornea, of, of adultery, to speak about something even more than just sexual sin. Because like a prophet, John is speaking like the prophets in the Old Testament who use the image of prostitution and lying down as a whore to describe Israel's sin of idolatry. Isaiah does this, Jeremiah does it, Ezekiel does it. In fact, in Ezekiel 16, um, Ezekiel tells Israel her whole story in one chapter. He he says, you were like this abandoned uh, orphan, left in a field to die, and, and God came, and I picked you up, I held you, I brought you in, I cared for you, I nurtured you, I grew you up, and you became a beautiful woman, and when you were old enough for love, I betrothed you, I became your husband. And then Ezekiel says, and, 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 and God says, I made you a queen, the most beautiful queen in the whole world. But Look what he says next. And the prophets could be uh, very graphic. He says, but you trusted in your beauty. You used your fame to become a whore, a prostitute. "'You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, "'and your beauty became his. "'You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places "'where you carried on your prostitution, "'and you went to him, and he possessed your beauty. "'You took your embroidered clothes that I gave you, "'and you offered my oil and incense before them. "'Also the food I provided you, "'the flour, the olive oil, the honey I gave you to eat, "'you offered as fragrant incense before them. "'This is what happened, declares the Lord.'" And, and, and then the prophet gets just ever so just descriptive. He, he says, at every street corner, you built your lofty shrines and you degraded your beauty, spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. And then God said, I am filled with fury against you, declares the sovereign Lord. When did you do these things, acting like a brazen whore? prostitute? And really, what, what, what the prophet here is, is is describing is sexual addiction. Israel became like a sexual addict. But he's talking about idolatry. And see, the reason why Ezekiel and the prophets use such graphic language to talk about idolatry is because. We can understand the force of sexuality, but not many of us feel the force of idolatry. And see, this is why the prophets use the imagery of idolatry and adultery interchangeably to show us that idolatry and adultery are the same thing. Because what the Bible teaches us about idols, that an idol is anything that we look to other than God to either get our sense of worth, our value, to heal the ache of our soul, to fill the void in our life, anything that we look to to feel loved, to feel esteemed. And listen, you might not think it's that big a deal to turn to a cheap substitute to find meaning and value and love and joy and satisfaction in anything other than God. But God isn't just a rule giver who gives us rules and says obey them. God is a lover. He loves us. And he made us to be in marriage with him. That's why he said, you shall have no other gods before you, no other lovers. He said, I don't want even any other graven images. I don't even want any pictures of any lovers in your lives. And see, this is what the ancients did. They they understood something that we moderns have either forgotten or think we're too sophisticated for. Money to an ancient wasn't just money. Sex to an ancient wasn't just sex. Food to an ancient wasn't just food. Prosperity to an ancient wasn't just prosperity. Wisdom and knowledge to an ancient wasn't just wisdom and knowledge. There there was a spiritual power behind those things, which is why they had a God for everything. And I don't know if we recognize... The, the, the force, the spiritual power behind all the plethora of things that we can choose in this world as substitutes for God, which is idolatry. And see, the Bible tells us that anything that becomes a substitute for God, whether it be our job, Possessions, money, sex, food, a relationship. The Bible calls that another lover. It's something we're in bed with. I mean, James does the same thing in James when he's talking about how sin works on our heart. James says, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And first of all, I don't think people today respect sin or the power of how sin can can work on our hearts to produce all these idols. In fact, James says when a person is tempted and dragged away by their own evil desire, that's lust. And he says, and then when they're enticed, that's seduced. See, when something comes into our life due to our lust, it seduces us, and that seduction, so quickly, says James, becomes a fatal attraction. And I'm gonna tell you, this morning, not too many people are gonna make a big deal about anyone who's in bed with their job, or who's in bed with a sport, or who's in bed with um, uh, their status, or, or, or having successful kids. But if you are in bed with a whore, that's not going to be looked too favorably upon. But what the Bible wants us, to say, wants us to know is that all idolatry is adultery, and this is the cup that Rome offered the world. a whole plethora of substitutes from prosperity to success to health, entertainment, all forms of pleasure, comfort, the good life. That's what Rome offered. But to participate to indulge, you had to pay homage, you had to offer your life, you had to sell your soul, you had to worship the beast. And the second and third angel are here to say it's time to pay the pauper. You drank Rome's cup, you're now going to drink God's cup. And this judgment, I want us to have the courage to set our eyes on it. It's great. Look at verses 10 and 11. Let's have some courage today. Some courage to look at the word of God And they too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured out in full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There there will be no rest or night for those who worship the beast and its image. Because as Paul says, God will not be mocked. What a person sows, also will they reap. And that is exactly how this judgment is depicted. It's depicted as a harvest. Look at verse 15. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap. Because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And who's going to carry out this judgment? Verse 14, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Do you have that picture of Christ? one like a son of man with a sickle in his hand ready to harvest the earth god will not be mocked whatever a person sows also will they reap next week we're going to look further into this judgment and i'm going to just tell you right now it's a, it's a judgment that's 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 greater than just a past judgment on rome Yes, God has judged. God is judging. God will judge. And there will be a future final judgment. But for now, I want to look at the good news. The first angel proclaiming to the world. And then I saw an angel flying in midair. Verse six, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the springs, and the water. Wow, is that good news, This first angel is saying, yes, it's coming, but it's not too late. It's not too late. We don't have to worship the beast. We don't have to be in bed with other lovers. We don't have to hitch our heart to Rome and, and go down with Rome as Rome goes down. We can actually hitch our hearts to Christ and, and, and stand on the high ground with him on Zion with his name on our foreheads. So anyone who thinks this text is gloom and doom doesn't see the gospel There's massive good news in in this text. There are 144,000 who stand with Christ in the heavenlies, who are spared the cup of God's wrath. Now the question becomes, who are the 144,000? Well, we use numbers strictly as quantities, but the, the, the Jewish people like to also use them symbolically. Uh, 12 to them is the number of a complete family. Jacob had 12 sons. There are 12 tribes. Jesus had 12 disciples. That is a picture of a perfect family. 10 is also another number for completion. You have 10 generations from Adam to Noah, and then 10, 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. You have 10 plagues. You have 10 commandments. You have 10 men required for for a synagogue to actually be a synagogue. So what you have here is you have 12 squared and you have 10 times 10 times 10. This is John's way of saying the people gathered around the throne who have God's name on their forehead. It's God's complete family. Now he gives us other descriptions also. Look at verse 4. It's said they did not defile themselves with women. And again, John is, is thinking, because later he's going to talk about Rome as this, as this female, as this great prostitute, this whore. So this is not just about sexual purity, but it obviously includes sexual purity, but it's people who didn't get in bed with Rome. They didn't sell out to Rome. They they, they didn't sell their souls to Rome. They didn't drink the cup that Rome offered. They didn't indulge. Yes, they lived in Rome, but they didn't become of Rome. And see, this has always been God's calling on his people, and I want us to hear this this morning. My own heart just Needed this this week. God has called us to be set apart. To be holy as he is holy. To be distinct. To be utterly distinct. And to stand out from our world. Not in obnoxious ways, but in life-giving ways. And see, this has always been the, the calling on God's people. So, so we too live in, in Babylon. We, we live in Rome. We, we live in what the Bible sometimes calls the world. The question then is who shapes who? Are we shaping our world or is our world shaping us? Who's influencing who? Who? Is our world becoming like us as we become like Christ or are we becoming like the world as it degenerates into the dragon into the beast? That is a very important question for the church. That is a very important question for every one of us to ask. What John tells us about the 144,000 is that they remain faithful to God Verse 4, it says, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes, even unto death. In fact, the text hints that these 144,000 people are all martyrs, that they did die in following Jesus. That's why they're called the first fruits. They're, they're, they're the first fruits from the dead. They're people that are willing to offer their bodies as living sacrifices. They listened to Jesus' words when Jesus said, Do not fear the one who can, uh, or, how does it go? Don't fear the one who can kill just the body, but not the soul, but fear the one who can kill both body and soul. Verse 5 says they kept their integrity. There was no deceit on their lips. Their lives were not full of lies and deceit. The outside matched the inside. The inside of their life matched the outside. And I think the the biggest description of all is is in verse 1 is the mark that they have. They don't wear the mark of the beast, but they have the mark of God on their foreheads. They're marked. They're marked by God. And God likes to do this. God likes to put his mark on his people going all the way back to the beginning uh, without being crass. He said, Abraham, I want you and your people, to be all the males, to be circumcised. I want to mark myself right there on that part of your body to say you belong to me. He said, I want you to mark yourself with tassels. I want you to wear tassels. I don't care what day of the week it is. I don't care what you're doing. You're going to wear tassels. He also said, I, I, I want Torah. I want Torah to be wrapped around your hands and around your arms. I want it to, to be placed on your forehead. I want you to be marked by my word. He wanted them to stand out. That's why he gave them the mark. It wasn't so much that the mark itself would call call them to stand out, but the mark reminded them that their calling was to stand out. But even with all these physical marks, God said this. What I really want is this. I don't just want circumcision. I want a circumcision of the heart. Do you bear the mark of God today? Has he marked you? Do you belong to him? Are we distinctive? Are we set apart? I'm telling you, if we could see the 144,000 in light of their world, we would say they are stunningly beautiful. Their lives are beautiful. But before we make this about them or make this all about us, let's end with this question. Why are they beautiful? The lamb. The lamb. The, 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 the lamb is, is why they're beautiful. The, the lamb is, is, is why we can be beautiful. The lamb is the reason why he can take someone who is steeped in pornea and make them clean from the inside out. It's his blood. It's the blood of the lamb that washes us and cleanses us. why we're beautiful it's why it's why verse four he he purchased us he he he, he did it it's it, it's not what we do it's what he did and then trusting that in fact the most beautiful thing is this is that you guys we are spared we're spared the cup we're spared the cup of God's wrath because God took the cup of his wrath and he placed it before his son and he said, son, would you be willing to drink this on their behalf? Jesus said, take this cup from me. But then he said, not my will, but your will be done. And because he drank The cup of God's wrath. We get to drink. This cup, which is the cup of of God's invitation, it's almost as if he's getting down on a knee. And it's the cup of the new marriage. Would you marry me? And that's the cup that he offers us. And it's not too late for any of us this morning to repent, to turn from all our other lovers and see the love that we have been made for and a love that says with all that I am, all that I have, I give myself to you. It is not too late to turn to that. And so this morning, he gives us a meal to celebrate This love, the love of God, which is in Christ. And I'm going to ask uh, the servers to come up because this is a family meal. We're going to eat it together, we're going to drink it together. As it's passed out, let's just also enter a time of silence. And this is a time for us to reflect, to repent, to turn from idols, from other lovers in our life, To turn towards him. And as we remember, because that's what this is the call to do, is to remember the love of God that's in Christ, that's offered to us. Jesus also said this, He said, This is real food. This is real food. And when we drink the cup, when we eat the bread, we are taking in Christ. We are appropriating him in us. He took the bread. He said, This is my body broken for you. Let's eat it. And as our teeth crush it, let's remember his body is crushed for us. And Jesus took the cup. He said, This is the cup of the new marriage. Marry me. With all that I am, all that I have, I give myself to you. To drink the cup, we say back to him Jesus, with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you. His blood cleanses us, protects us drink.